Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Caroline Hyde. Now, this podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor along with Romaine Bostic and Joe Weisenthal. What do you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. So with less than 40 days, you got it, 40 days until the US election, we saw this week investors really bracing for it. And when I say bracing, I mean buying protection against further volatility that will likely be injected into these markets from the political fireworks ahead. Now, concerns have been stirred amid the partisan battle over replacing Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, damaging prospects for another round of fiscal stimulus, despite the pronouncements, of course, from House Democrats, the White House, that talks are set to restart again. But with US elections on presidential and the congressional level, that uncertainty over who will be in power and the efficacy of who's in power, well, it's likely to translate into heightened risks for the markets and the economy. For perspective on this added uncertainty and current gridlock, we spoke with Michael Purvis. He's the founder and CEO of Telback and Capital. Now, we started by asking Michael well, about how a Supreme Court vacancy has become a market event and what consequences traders and investors should be aware of. Well, I think the first thing that, that comes to mind really is, is that, you know, the fiscal talks, the phase four, you know, from midsummer that was supposed to be done already, right? At some healthy amount. And those talks were disintegrating before RBG passed away on Friday. And that, you know, the, the, the how do you sort of cobble together a meaningful stimulus package in the next few weeks when, when all of DC is focused on SCOTUS, um, I think that's going to be, you know, uh, it, it's going to be a challenge there. So I think what you saw in the price action today, Joe, is 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 some of the more stimulus sensitive um, asset classes, mm. uh, you know, really taking it on the chin. Um, I thought it was very interesting to see how well the Nasdaq performed today because yeah. I, it's been my contention that that uh, stocks like Microsoft and Apple, Amazon, and so forth will be actually be able to sort of plod through the um, Q4 better than most other stocks um, there. Um, but there's a second facet of this, of uh, uh, Bader Ginsburg's departure as it relates to the markets, which is that, uh, that I think Trump had already sort of reflected on this, which is that the concept of a contested election mm. seems to be in increasing there. And you're seeing that, you were just discussing the VIX curve it's also being reflected in the gold term structure for implied volatilities. Mm. 
We're a big elevated uh, premium for the October, November, and I think it's starting to bleed into the December contracts as well. It's becoming more and more apparent there. Yeah. Um, Michael. So, I, yeah. Sorry, pardon me for interrupting to a certain degree. You're, it's really interesting you make certain calls and certain stocks. You say, like, you're impressed by how much the big tech managed to weather today's particular storm. You're looking at the VIX, you're looking at gold volatility. But what about the US dollar? Today it seemed to be a haven trade, but often it isn't. And I'm interested in which direction you think it goes when we do see this sort of political risk, what it means for the US dollar in terms of its downward trajectory. Right. I, that's a great question. Um, thank you for asking it. Because, you know, one would think that, you know, um, a, a contested election, almost a pre-forecasted contested election, unlike, you know, Gore versus Bush back in 2000, you know, really would be sort of dollar weakening. And of course, we saw the dollar put in a great move today. I think a lot of this has to come back to the fact that the, you know, the euro weakness today, I think there's a little bit of a, okay, the euro's had this great run and we've had this, um, sort of condition where we've had this, you know, persistence in in COVID cases in Europe um, and, and some disturbing statistics there on the COVID front. And yet the stimulus, the fiscal stimulus to go along with that, to sort of help the markets plow through that, um, the markets, including the euro, um, you know, it's sort of been spoken for, you know, we have this, you know, this big pan-European stimulus that's been cobbled together and, you know, it looks like those checks start, don't clear till 2021. And I think when you have this condition where heightened, heightened COVID risk, but the stimulus is already sort of priced into asset classes, then you have these kind of big moves um, like you saw today. So I think it's, it's an interesting discussion for Q4, um, you know, which asset class if takes it on the chin the most if we have a contested election and all sorts of, you know, November 3rd um, craziness. Yeah. I, I, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm wondering whether gold, you know, even though it, it has obviously took a big hit today, I'm wondering whether that's going to actually be one of the ways um, that, that might be a better performer um, uh, as a way to sort of investors to, to market, yeah. you know, to get through this mess. I, I, I would also say this, I think, you know, there's so much priced into this higher VIX curve, this higher premium, in Q4, I really wonder whether, um, you know, again, these big cap tech stocks are really going to be, which are so important to the overall market, are going to be crushed in the condition of a, cont of a contested election um, there. I'm, I'm kind of skeptical about that, um, so, particularly if they've been sort of pre-sold uh, uh, right now. So real quickly here, uh, Michael, then, I mean, we did just get uh, testimony, prepared testimony for Powell uh, for his hearing uh, tomorrow. And I mean, it just reiterated the idea that it is basically going to do whatever it takes to keep, uh, keep things moving here. It did also mention the idea that there is some improvement in some of the economic indicators they follow. So can investors, even if we do get to a contested election or some sort of mess in November, can investors maybe take a little bit of solace in the fact that the Fed, at least, is going to be a little bit more of a consistent factor uh, for the next uh, few months, if not years? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the Fed's been nothing if not consistent. And that's really understood this incredible move lower in yields, but also volatility that, you know, facilitates stronger price movements in, in risk assets like equities. I think one of the, you know, troublesome things in a way is, is that he's also, by helping keep 
asset price is supported, he's also arguably not facilitating the kind of fiscal dialogue that we need in mm. D.C. at the same time as sort of a second order impact of that. So I think that's yeah. that's an interesting discussion. But I think there's you're absolutely right that there's no question that the um, you know, when you have the most important security in the world, the 10 year yeah. uh, Treasury note being anchored the way it is, that's very, very constructive for risk assets. And they can plow through all sorts of noise and political issues with that backdrop. Earlier this week, the stimulus talks in Washington, they seemed to be dead. And the market rotation looked like it's becoming collateral damage. Down go the banks, down go energy stocks. And here comes roaring back tech as a haven again. So Fed Chair Jay Powell and Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, they've both been making their case for more fiscal support to bolster the economy in testimony before Congress. We spoke about the economic consequences of no further stimulus with University of Oregon professor and Bloomberg opinion columnist Tim Dewey. Now, we spoke with Tim before we learned that the White House and House Democrats were actually trying to restart negotiations. Many people, though, have remained sceptical for those developments, with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell still focused squarely on filling the Supreme Court vacancy. So we started by asking Tim how damaging it would be if no more fiscal stimulus was approved until the election and inauguration next year. It's probably self-sustaining at this point. I think you're kind of talking about a situation that we had during the last uh, uh, expansion where the lack of fiscal stimulus really slowed the ability of the economy to recover as quickly as we would like it to be. But I do think that, that it's um, important to speed in the recovery, but it's not important necessarily to maintain the recovery. So where is it just that we need any, if you could have a wish <laughs> granted at the moment, would it be for further monetary stimulus in any form or would it purely be from fiscal and where would it be directed, Tim? Well, I think it would be much more helpful to have the fiscal at this point. I think uh, you know we should we should take uh, Chairman Powell at his, at his word and uh, you know and, and heed his advice that really what we could do is again continue the unemployment benefits. It doesn't necessarily have to be the full six hundred dollars. It could be tapered or phased down according to how quickly the unemployment rate falls, for example. But I, I think you. Along the, something along those lines would be important. The other thing that would be important is uh, aid for, for state and local governments. They're still going to face right. some uh, uh, constrictions going forward. So if you could do those two things, you would probably accelerate the pace of the recovery. Uh, and I think those would be good policy options. But as you started this discussion, right now it looks like those things are dead in the water for right now. So pace of the recovery, your view is that even in the absence of another round, we'll probably continue to see up arrows, even if they're not as up as they otherwise would have been. What are the costs of a slowing recovery? So even if we get there eventually, unemployment eventually gets uh, back to where it was uh, pre-crisis, are there long-term damage to the sort of productive capacity of the economy by taking the slow route? Well, that is, is clearly the concern that we're worried about. And one reason that uh, uh, the Fed would like to see uh, more fiscal stimulus, because we do worry that the longer people are unemployed, their skills deteriorate, the longer uh, the, the, the economy remains weak, the more firms that are going to go under that are harder to build, uh, the possibility we're going to have a lower investment in the future. So all those factors are really are really. Uh, key, you know, critical in defining that we need some more fiscal stimulus. Uh, so again, it gets the issue of how quickly do we want to get out of this mess? 
and as quickly as possible, as I'm sure what many are feeling. Tim, really interestingly, on Twitter yesterday, I think you raised some points about some of the wealth that is being accumulated at the moment. By, mm. There was some really interesting data showing that actually U.S. households at the moment have improved in terms of their wealth. Not, not every single race, unfortunately, but certainly most income brackets. Can you talk us through whether some of the data is perhaps better than you anticipate and, and whether that can be sustained in the current environment we're in? Well, so that's a that's a great great issue. I think right now that a lot of the data has been, I think, better than anticipated, and we see actually Fed speakers talk about that. Uh, and I think one reason was the, the the extent of the fiscal stimulus. So one of the uh, data points we recently saw was that household wealth would, had uh, basically gone through new re old records, uh, and that's not a huge surprise. I read about that. And we talked about that on the show uh, a few weeks ago. We talked about how much excess um, uh, savings was. In, in recent months. Uh, we also had higher stock prices, higher home prices, and all of that really contributed to, to a solid uh, financial position. We've also had uh, a recent uh, survey on the well-being of households, and that was very interesting because most households showed at least that they were doing financially okay at a rate that was at least as much as they were prior to the, prior to the uh, uh, COVID pandemic, and also that most households had a better uh, capacity to handle emergency costs. Uh, so there is a lot of evidence, I think, out there that the fiscal stimulus we did did, in fact, have a real positive effect on households. And that's one reason to think maybe we should keep going with it. Tim, I want to talk about uh, monetary policy a little bit further, because, of course, a few weeks ago, we got the uh, new framework of average inflation targeting from Powell. But then since then, so we had the uh, FOMC decision last week, and there were two dissents. And then we had uh, Chicago Fed President Charles Evans today actually raising the prospect of hiking rates even before inflation hits that 2% level. So is there a little less... Are you surprised that there is maybe not as much a sort of togetherness or consensus about the path forward as there uh, seemed to be? No, I think that really emerged pretty quickly after the Fed announced its new framework. You saw a number of Fed presidents taking different, uh, you know, basically different interpretations of what that uh, framework is. I think a real critical point to remember is all of this is something that's going to happen in the future. Right now, right. the forecast and the outlook doesn't support an interest rate hike. So this is sort of um, issues that the Fed still has to work with, but they don't have a, a uniform view of what average means. So you know, we, we're not exactly sure what their, their ultimate intentions are. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart that means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. 
Now, despite the pleas from various Fed officials, US politicians are still gridlocked over how much and where to spend the next round of stimulus. Now, if ever they do agree, then maybe, just maybe, they should spend some money on green economy policies. Remember, private investment is, of course, already doing that direction. Tesla, Volkswagen, announcing this week advancements in electric vehicles. But where could government policy fuel such developments too? US, perhaps it could look at Europe as a guide, where the EU will sell nearly $270 billion worth of green bonds. Now that's money to be used on climate-friendly projects. It's all part of the recovery there. And the ECB is also starting to buy bonds linked to environmental goals as part of its stimulus too. So this spending is helping on two fronts, the climate, of course, and also the economy. Now, with more job losses looking pretty permanent, new green opportunities could perhaps be an answer. And in fact, you can find parallels in history where government spending totally restructures the economy, especially when you look back at World War II. We spoke about this push for a green recovery and what history can provide as a guide with J.W. Mason, who is a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute and also associate professor of economics at City University of New York. J.W. has a new study out and it really looks at where we can learn from the role of public sector in the economic mobilization in World War II, how it can be applied to both ongoing climate emergency and the current coronavirus crisis in serving up a cleaner and perhaps more equal recovery. We started by asking him what his number one finding about policy in the Second World War era was. You know, my colleague Andrew Bossy and I, I think for us there's really two big lessons. And, and the number one is there's a lot more flexibility in the economy than we sometimes think when you come in and you spend on a really big scale. If you look at World War II, you know, the scale of spending uh, the, the military spending increased by an amount equal to about 80% of total pre-war GDP in, wow. in a span of about four years. And people think, oh, that must have involved incredible crowding out, civilian living standards falling, austerity on the home front, but it didn't. Consumption rose uh, right through the war. And the reason that was able to happen is because this huge influx of public dollars and, of course, the big public planning process that went with it, um, public direction of a lot of parts of the economy led to by far the fastest um, rate of output growth that we've ever seen. Huge increases in productivity, huge increases in labor force pro, um, uh, participation. So the effect was this big uh, spending program essentially paid for itself and didn't come at the expense of mm. civilian production. Professor, I think what's also really interesting in your research is it didn't come at the expense of equality either in terms of in fact it was a force for reducing inequality in some way shape and form the fact that actually it helped all boats rise to a certain extent where do you see that painting us forward at the moment as we worry a lot about climate change and we worry a lot about a growing divide and unequal recovery we see from the pandemic how can it be a force for inclusivity well, that's right. And I think this ties into conversations that we've been having around the Fed and other places, this recognition that what we think of as macroeconomic policy, interest rates, fiscal policy actually has big implications for income distribution. Because one thing we've seen recently, but you see much more dramatically during the war period, is that weak labor markets are worse for people at the bottom. 
when you've really got nothing but your labor to sell, you really depend on having a seller's market for that labor. If you're not protected by a union or a credential or something else. And on the other side, a really strong labor market like we saw, you know, during the war brings people into the labor force who never would have had a chance and opens up opportunities for people that just don't exist under under normal conditions. So a really super strong um, uh, labor market, which you can get by a big enough public spending program, is probably historically the most powerful force for income inequality that there is. And so, um, you know, you can, you can. Yeah. So, JW, I mean, uh, this is this is great. When you talk about sort of the parallels between now and what we saw during the wartime era, is there a sense here that the time that we were living in back then was so different, or different enough from where we are today, that some of the uh, programs that were in place then may not necessarily work or may not necessarily have the same intended effect today? Well, I obviously wouldn't want to do a cookie-cutter approach of, of mimicking everything that was done during the wartime period. But I think in some ways, the war experience, although it was a long time ago, is more similar to some of the problems that are facing us now than the economy and the types of problems we were worried about of 10 or 20 years ago, both in the sense of the scale of economic transformation that's required, you know, phasing out whole industries, building up new industries from the ground up, as was done, things like aircraft and synthetic rubber during the war, and also simply the scale of public spending required. When, when you look at decarbonization, you're talking about something much bigger than any sort of peacetime um, you know, public program that the U.S. has embarked on like that. So I think in some ways, not in every way, but in some ways, the analogy is actually going to be quite close. And I think we just don't have a lot of other laboratories. We don't have a lot of other test cases to see what, uh, you know, a, a, an expansion of the public sector on the kind of scale people are talking about, what that might actually do to the economy. So I think it's it's actually critical that we learn from the, from the cases that we do have. What about the planning part specifically? So it's like, okay, we can spend 80% of GDP in a few years and not cause the inflation or consumption deprivation that some people might have thought. However, a war, there are sort of basic munitions and other things that it's very clear what you need to build. Talk about the planning part and how crucial it is to get that right and what mechanisms we need to sort of do a sort of large-scale decarbonization and when you see sort of like, okay, here's a mandate from California, or here's a random thing from there, how much more centralized does it really need to be to avoid it being, uh, you know, much messier than it needs to be? I think if you look at the wartime experience, you see that what's really called for are a mix of approaches. When you need something that's already an established industry to simply operate on a larger scale, then just just order more, you know, steel, if, if you're talking about the steel industry during World War II, or, or subsidies, you know, can be an appropriate approach, or just have, you know, some type of straightforward mandate. Um, again, when you're talking about an established industry, when you're talking about a newer industry, one maybe that exists in the private sector, but not on anything like the scale that it needs to, um, it's clear from the wartime experience that financing can be a, a huge problem, and there's probably a big role for the government as sort of the venture capitalist of the green economy, because the truth is the private sector uh, really doesn't necessarily like to, in a few sectors, of course, they love to take risks, but actually in general, they don't necessarily like to take risks, especially when a lot of the payoff may be, may be public rather than private. So I think there's clearly a big role for channeling credit towards sectors that maybe have commercial potential but are very far from being established now. And there was an enormous amount of that during the war. Essentially, all the, the investment, even the investment that was carried out by private companies, right. was publicly financed during the war. And then in the sectors that are really, really new that have to be built from the ground up, like, again, like synthetic rubber during the war or uranium processing, which was actually a big industry, um, 
the government just has to step in and do it. And we're going to need a lot of public investment, again, either in sectors where it's too new or where there's too many externalities, where it's where it's it's, it's just too much of the of, of the costs are and, and, and benefits are, are being borne by the public anyway to expect the private sector to step in. But I think the lesson is it's really going to be a mix of approaches. There isn't there isn't one magic formula here. But the key thing is going to be scale. It's just it's doing mm. enough of everything. And can the scale be achieved from a state-by-state state level? Because, JW, as we look at you know, political risk as it currently stands, if come November we do have the same president in place as we do now, likelihood is perhaps these sorts of pushes for a green economy are not going to come from a federal level, but we might potentially still get these state-by-state state laws coming in as we see from California today. Well, this goes beyond the scope of this paper, but I think states in this country in many cases have a lot more fiscal capacity than they've been willing to use so far. And if there's not, you know, the, the first best is for a lot of reasons is, is a very big federal program. But if we can't achieve that, I think we, it would be a huge mistake for a big state like New York or California to say, sit on their hands and say, well, we can't do anything. I think you could have massive public investment programs and also, you know, um, public financing programs for, for private investment carried out at the at the state level if that's if that's where the political will is and I, I think again you know the, the key thing is is you've got to do you, you've got to you've got to go big enough and certainly if we're talking about macroeconomic benefits on income distribution on productivity growth that really comes from the scale of the program your industry is unique it faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart that means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Now, the stress being felt by the pandemic may be felt perhaps most acutely in cities. This week alone, we saw London added to a risk area in the UK in terms of the virus and UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson asking residents throughout the UK to work from home for the next six months. Of course, that affects the capital most severely. Companies there now having to halt or reverse efforts to bring workers back into the office. Here in New York City, just think Mayor Bill de Blasio expanding week-long furloughs for another 9,000 employees in an effort to save money. The city facing a $9 billion shortfall in revenue. City budgets are being stretched, with many workers still either working from home or unemployed. But it's not just city budgets. You have the financial institutions that support cities also being hampered. Regional banks are what I'm talking about. And perhaps you might feel they should be doing, well, pretty okay in current scenarios of, well, a surprising housing boom. You need mortgages. Remember, this week, new home sales data hit 14-year highs. And of course, there's the PPP stimulus programs. Well, shouldn't they be bringing in fees for regional banks who are helping enact them? But instead, actually, no, regional banks are under pressure and their stock prices are slumping. So we spoke about the stress on local and regional banks with Chris McGatty. He's the head of US bank research at KBW. It's a Stiefel company. We started by asking Chris, 
What about the current environment is pulling this sector down? I think there's real two, two factors impacting the group, and the group's down about 40%, as you, as you mentioned. Yeah. The first is credit quality, right? We're going through an unprecedented uh, period of volatility with credit. Um, it, can, you know, it came from a, you know, a little bit of a shock in the first quarter, given credit was so strong leading into this. And so the first thing that's impacting the banks is, is credit quality. Um, the second is, um, is interest rates, right? In response to the credit problems, uh, the Fed cut rates to zero. Uh, and so that's creating a, a structural challenge for banks from a net interest margin and a revenue growth perspective. So you're getting on hit. You're getting hit on both sides of the P&L for the banks. Yeah, and talk a little bit more about uh, the, the net interest margin here, because, I mean, a lot of people focus on this. And you saw the big banks seem to navigate this a little bit well. Obviously, the big money center banks are much broader in terms of their businesses, so they have something to sort of buffer them. The regional banks, do they not have anything that gets maybe sort of blunt uh, the impact of, that, of those lower net interest margins? Right. So, so the biggest banks have the offset of capital markets. So with all this volatility, it becomes uh, really a capital markets, uh, really momentum that we saw in the first half of the year. So that's a huge offset. To the, um, to the other side of the revenue picture. For the smaller banks, uh, which is your question, um, their revenue mix is much more concentrated, 75, 80% tied to the yield curve. And that's really two components. It's loan growth, which is slowing, and it's then interest margins, which are compressing. So the, the smallest banks, because of the lack of diversification, are being hit a little bit harder. Talking of diversification, we were just speaking briefly about how hard hit those that have been exposed to New York City have been. Are there regional banks that have managed to diversify hmm. a portfolio from a regional perspective, from lending not only in New York, but in the suburbs or in cities that have been hard, less hard hit, that might weather this better than their share prices reflect? Sure. As you, as you alluded to uh, in your prior segment, you know, New York's the epicenter of the problem. So a lot of the New York stocks, the bank stocks in New York have been hit, you know, 40, 50 percent year to date. Um, that'll take time to recover, no doubt. Um, and, and so what you're going to see is, is, a, is an extended workout period for New York. Now, outside of New York, I mean, the uniqueness of this pandemic is really no asset class is, um, is immune. Um, but I think if you want to think about relative exposure, um, commercial lending, small business lending, that's going to be hit the first and the hardest. And we're seeing that in the numbers. Um, residential lending, on the other hand, underwriting has been very good over the past 10 years since the financial crisis. We've talked about lower interest rates. That's helping the borrowers significantly lower their monthly payments. And we've seen volumes really pick up. So. So mortgage assets are actually performing pretty well. So what about, you know, one of the things that got a lot of attention was that with the PPP program door, A, there was a lot of praise for how the community banks did in managing that program, arguably better than the major banks. And they were supposed to get some sort of fee revenue from each one of those loans they conducted. Did that just turn out to be, A, investors are looking through it because it was temporary and not going to be sustained and not a big enough issue to really move the needle? No, you're right. The, the small banks uh, certainly punched up weight, up cap in terms of their market share in the PPP program. It's been a huge success. Um, the economics of the transactions are, haven't changed. The revenue recognition, however, has been pushed out. So initially, when the program was written, we thought the revenues would come in in second quarter, third quarter. Due to the forgiveness schedule and, and with the SBA, those revenues will come in more Q3, but more Q4 and Q1 of next year. Um, and while they are transitory earnings, to your point, um, they are capital. And so um, the industry entered this this pandemic with record capital level, mm. and the uh, fees will only. I'm interested, and it was something that Remain brought up in our previous segment. Can you speak to Chris potentially of any consolidation we're going to see in the market because of this? Sure. Um, I think first off, uh, heading into this consolidation was was pretty healthy. 
Mm -hmm. uh, we saw about four to four and a half percent of the banks every year get consolidated, which is a pretty active rate. Um, with, um, with COVID and the credit uncertainty, really it's pencils down. Um, the banks are trying to, to really estimate how, how big of a, a loss they're gonna deal with over the next uh, couple of years. Uh, and because of that, there's really not a lot of consolidation and there probably won't be a lot of consolidation uh, for a few more quarters. Having said that, on the, on the back of this, I think this, this has really opened up eyes about the need to consolidate even further. There's still thousands of banks in the country. Um, if the revenue picture stays the way we think it will be with, with interest rates around zero on the short end and sub 1% on the long end, this is gonna create a major revenue issue for the banks. And one of the ways to combat that is to um, do an acquisition and really uh, extract the costs uh, from the acquired institution. And so, Chris, with regards to the regional banks then and uh, I guess just how they sort of navigate these waters, one thing that had sort of uh, come up a lot prior to COVID-19 uh, was a lot of competition from, I guess, non-traditional uh, financial type companies uh, that were basically trying to make it easier to get either to get mortgages or uh, other types of financing. I'm curious as to whether we see any sort of investment or increased investment by some of the regional banks in their technology and if they even have uh, the wiggle room to do, to do that in this environment. That's a great question. I think uh, you had asked me this question five years ago. I think the view was that the, um, the non-banks were gonna really take over the banks. Um, I think the difference is the banks have deposits and are able to take deposits, which is a real, real value in the time of crisis. I think what you're gonna see and you're starting to see it is more partnerships. So banks partnering with non-banks and really leveraging the technology and the client base. Um, and I think that will continue to evolve. If you think about where um, banks are investing money today, it's, it's certainly technology. You know, we're not going to branches anymore. That will be um, continue to be consolidated at the bank level, and they're going to invest a portion of those proceeds in technology to get more efficient. That's it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like the podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tune in every weekday to our Daily Market Close show from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.